Still, even in the face of grievous misfortune, the characters created by Schultz exude a tenderness that allows this achingly intimate drama to move past sorrow and hit you like a shot in the heart. That's Peter Travers of Rolling Stone talking about Waves, one of three films that we're reviewing this week on Cinephile. We'll also be talking about Terrence Malick's film A Hidden Life and also Academy Award nominated for Best Documentary, American Factory. Those are the three films we're reviewing this time on Cinephile, and we got a great guest. Justin Chang is one of my favorite film critics in America. He's a film critic for uh, the LA Times, and Justin is one of them waving the flag here big time for Parasite. And if anybody hasn't seen it yet, you listen to Justin talk about it, you could feel his passion. Also, why the Irishman may have been overlooked when it came to the SAGs. Uh, he's got thoughts on why he didn't like Jojo Rabbit. So there's plenty of good stuff coming up there with Justin. Of course, Total Recall this year. I think, Joe, we're looking at 2003. So the Oscars of 2003. The films of 2002, Chicago, Gangs in New York, Lord of the Rings, The Pianist, stuff like that. And our Mount Rushmore is going to be coming-of-age movies in honor of Waves, which is a high school coming-of-age film, which uh, it feels like two different movies, but I'll, I'll discuss that in a second. First off, let's lead with the SAGs. Or actually, I should lead with the fact we appreciate all the support everybody's giving us on uh, social media and such. And please do go to Apple Podcasts, and you can rate and review. The numbers are going up incrementally, but we'd love to see a real push here. So you know what? Give us some love and uh, subscribe. Tell all your friends, and hopefully we can get more and more people uh, watching and listening. This is from Monsieur R.S., so glad this podcast is back. Took me a while to find it again. Adnan's voice is refreshing. You can listen to this podcast almost any setting. His optimism and energy are infectious. Although become more of a TV viewer because of industry changes over the last 10 years. This is my go-to podcast for any worthwhile movies out there. That's very, very nice. And also, I, I couldn't even pronounce this, but it's a KDMDJD. It's just like a bunch of different letters. He just put top movie podcast, more cinephile. Appreciate that. We will definitely keep this going. More and more podcasts are on the way. Let's start with the SAGs. I'm going to wave the white flag right now for the Irishman. Pour a little something out because it ain't going to happen, folks. When I saw it, New York Film Festival, September 27th, I said this movie might win Best Picture, and it's not going to happen now because it did not win the Golden Globe Top Drama, but that happens. It did not win the SAG. That's a huge problem as far as the best ensemble, and it did not win the biggest detriment to the Irishman's chances, the Producers Guild Award. The PGA, no golf fans. It's the Producers Guild Award, not the Golf Association. And in this case, the PGA Award goes to 1917. Sam Mendes' film, Late Charging Here, got in a few theaters in late December, as I've spoken about ad nauseum. The film was almost finished editing, not until December, and uh, it's just arrived with a huge crescendo. It was opened at number one at $37 million. I believe it's most recent take. It, it's not number one, I think, because of Bad Boys, but it's like number three now, so $60 million domestic, and it's obviously going to do big business overseas. The fact that that won at the Golden Globes for Best Drama, and then it won the PGA, that makes it the front runner. Eight of the last 10 winners of the PGA have won Best Picture, including last year's Green Book. The other film that could contend, though, is Parasite. I think right now it's Green Book versus, Par excuse me, Parasite versus 1917 as Parasite wins the Best Ensemble Award on Sunday at the SEGS. I mean, that is huge. First foreign language film ever to pick up the top prize. You saw the crowd have a huge reaction to it. So this has become a box office phenomenon, $140 million globally. Uh, amazing to see. And like I said, Justin Chang from the LA Times will talk more about that film a little bit later on. Best actor goes to Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, again, I, I've talked ad nauseum about why I'm not crazy about uh, the performance or the film, but I loved his speech. He very, very generous. He spent the entire time praising other actors. So it was one of my favorite speeches of the night, the way he spoke about 
Leonardo DiCaprio and, and all the other nominees. It was really, really kind of him. And he said, I'm standing here on the shoulders of my favorite actor, Heath Ledger. So I thought he won the award for, for best speech of the night. Kudos to Joaquin Phoenix, who also was recently profiled in 60 Minutes. If you didn't get a chance to watch that, not as weird as you might think. He was on there with Anderson Cooper, although you can tell he's not a fan of talking to the media. Renee Zellweger wins for Best Actress. Of course, that's an absolute lock. Laura Dern wins Best Supporting Actress. Again, absolute lock. And Brad Pitt, absolute lock supporting actor. Scott Feinberg, who was great recently on Cinephile. Make sure you listen to Scott. He was on with us a week ago. As he tweeted, it would be a real shock at this point for these four not to win all the acting categories Pitt's speech, uh, uh, definitely the funniest speech of the night. As he said, I've got to add this to my Tinder profile when he won. He also said, <laughs> playing a guy who gets high, takes his shirt off, and is not good to his wife. This was a real stretch for me. That was funny. And I'm glad the fact he mentioned Tarantino and his foot fetish because he says Quentin has separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. I, I feel like that doesn't get enough pub, the fact that Tarantino's got this weird-ass foot fetish. So thankfully, Brad Pitt mentioned that as well. I mean, look at Uma Thurman's feet. I mean, he's showing feet all over the place. Uh, as far as the TV shows, The Crown wins Best Drama. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Juggernaut. Love Tony Shalhoub. Great to see Tony Shalhoub win. The Maisel uh, win would seem to be a surprise because even they were joking, Alex Borstein said, I voted for Fleabag. This makes no sense. Fleabag is brilliant. Shalhoub, by the way, dedicating the award to Brian Tarantino, who died of a drug overdose in November, and said, our brother, here's to you. Nothing stopping Fleabag. Claire Atkins special came up short in the ensemble race, but Pamela uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge wins Best Female Actor, playing a troubled woman living in London. Everybody who's seen it tells you it's about a, it's about a horny woman in love with a priest. So hey, if that's not enough of a recommendation for you, seriously, go see it. It's won the BAFTA, it's won the Globes, won the Emmys, and now won the SAG as well. Jennifer Aniston wins for The Morning Show. I haven't seen it. Adam Sandler, uh, she did give a shout out to him, who did not get a SAG or Oscar nomination for Uncut Gems. That was a nice little moment there. Peter Dinklage wins again. Talk about Unstoppable. He wins for Game of Thrones. And Fosse Verdon does well. Michelle Williams won for Best Actress in a TV Movie or Miniseries. And also the great Sam Rockwell won for Best Actor playing Bob Fosse. So interesting how those awards all went down. And an Oscars overlap note. SAG Awards often seen as an important precursor to the Oscars. There tends to be a greater overlap with the union and members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is... The organization behind the Academy Awards. Also some drama as well before the telecast. Robert De Niro initially barred from entering the Shrine Auditorium. Forgot his ticket on the floor of his limousine. After security asked him a few questions, he was eventually allowed to take his seat. Could you imagine, Joe? We're not going to let Bob De Niro in. I'm sorry, do you have any identification? We, we don't believe that you're Robert De Niro. Yeah, I wonder what the questioning was like. I wonder if he was like, you talking to me? Or if they just made him do a monologue from one of his <laughs> movies? I don't know how that would work. <laughs> So it's Robert De Niro. Let him in, you know? Yeah, I don't think he's trying to sneak his way in here right now. Uh, for all the superhero fans out there, Avengers Endgame did win outstanding action performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture. That beat out the Irishman. I want the Irishman to win for stunt ensemble in a motion picture for an action performance. Did not happen, unfortunately. Uh, but good news there if you're a fan of Avengers Endgame and uh, overall entertaining ceremony. Uh, De Niro's speech was great, as always. Uh, I thought the montage was incredible. I mean, God, they've got so many movies. And to, to whittle that down in just a few minutes, that was uh, inspiring to see. Leonardo DiCaprio, who's always great with speeches. I remember when he gave, uh, he honored uh, Scorsese at a previous award ceremony. He was awesome. So very cool to see that. And his speech, uh, I thought, was classy. You know, you know he's going to take a shot at Trump. I didn't think it was over the top. I thought he made his point and moved on. And a uh, very, very cool night this eggs. Joe, your thoughts on the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which was competing with the NFC Championship game. Thankfully, that game wasn't great. I was actually going to watch the SAGs on DVR. But once the Niners were kind of uh, t pulling away with it, I said, okay, I'm okay to watch the SAGs now. Right. It, it was a great game if you're a Niners fan, for sure. Um, but I think... 
Jennifer Aniston, that surprised me that she beat both Olivia Colman and Jodie Comer. Olivia Colman winning the Golden Globe and Jodie Comer winning the Emmy Awards. So they seem to be favorites. So that seemed to be a surprise. And also, I don't know about you, but I, I still am really hoping that Adam Driver can still take home the Oscar. But it kind of seems to be trajectorying towards Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, it's not going to happen, but I'm with you, man. You know, my wife hadn't seen it yet, so uh, I just forced her. I just put it on. I said, all right, the kids are down. You got to watch it, seriously. So I watched it for the second time. God, he's great. I mean, that scene, which everyone's talked about, I mean, that big blowout there with him and uh, Scarlett Johansson. God, he's powerful. And I'm telling you, what this is, it's just the bias, man. The Oscars, they love it. You know, the guy's got a disability. You know, you think about the Downey speech in Tropic Thunder. They love it when a guy plays the villain. I mean, listen, Denzel with Training Day, Heath Ledger is a joker, Joaquin Phoenix is the joker. In long overdue, of course, Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor. Didn't win for Walk the Line. You know, they loved him in Her. He's obviously a really impressive actor, the master. But I'm with you, man. When I just when I watch both films back to back, there's no question to me. Adam Driver, Marriage Story was the performance of the year. Playing just a regular dude, right? He's just a dad. He's a theater director who's trying to manage as best as he can. And the different shades of emotion. I, I love the clip that they showed from the SAGs when he goes, you know, this is the thing. He needs to know that I fought for him. It's, it's such a powerful movie. Oh, 100% agree. I... I... Really, really want him to win. Doesn't seem like he will. Did you see, though, the um, at the beginning, first, did, what did you think of them going hostless? And did you see the uh, Eugene Levy and Daniel Levy? Uh, I did. Their well, I thing? love the fact he shouted out Hamilton, Ontario. I mean, the, the fact he shouted out Hamilton was fantastic because Eugene Levy, proud Canadian. They did do that bit where he was kind of going on too long. I mean, it was all right. I mean, <laughs> generally, awards shows are too long anyways. But but the Sags is only 215. So you know what? If he wants to make a couple of jokes off the top there with this kid, I'll support him in uh, Shit's Creek. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, aside from that, that was it for me. Just happy to see Parasite win again. That seems to be the front runner. So... Hopefully they bring home the Oscar. Yeah, very, very cool to see now because all the all the major awards are in. I'm still waiting for the DGA. I don't believe that's been announced yet, the Directors Guild Awards. So that may give us an indication if that goes to Mendez or to Bong Joon-ho, who appear to be the uh, the two leaders right now. All right, so that's the story when it comes to the SAGs. Coming up next, we are going to talk about a few movies, reviews of not only Waves, but Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, an Academy Award-nominated documentary, American Factory. That's coming up next. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. All right, now it's time to review Waves. Here's the synopsis set against the vibrant landscape of South Florida and featuring an astonishing ensemble of award-winning actors and breakouts alike. Waves traces the epic emotional journey of a suburban African-American family led by a well-intentioned but domineering father as they navigate love, forgiveness, and coming together in the aftermath of a loss. From acclaimed director Trey Edward Schultz, Waves is a heart-rending story about the universal capacity for compassion and growth, even in the darkest of times. It stars, among other actors, Calvin Harrison Jr. plays Tyler, uh, who really owns the first half of the film. The second half of the film is more about Emily, who's uh, played by Taylor Russell. 
And they mentioned the domineering father. He is that wonderful actor, Sterling K. Brown. I remember I met him a few years ago at the Celebrity Softball Game. This is when he was first blowing up because he broke out as Christopher Darden in the OJ miniseries. Couldn't have been nicer to me and my wife. And, I, we, were, and we were telling him, listen, dude, you're going to blow up. Like, you are a great actor. You're unbelievable in that movie. He was very humble and down to earth. So I'm so happy to see the uh, acclaim he's had in This Is Us and now in films as well. And he, he's excellent here. I mean, he plays a guy who's leading his family in this uh, you know, upper-class lifestyle there in Florida, very proud of his work, maybe a little bit self-absorbed, but uh, he's in great shape. He's lifting all the time. He's pushing his son, who's into wrestling. But he is a domineering father. He's a little bit difficult at times. He's very curt. He's very strict. But I thought that he didn't play the role with cliches. You know, you think of these uh, fathers end up being jerks. That Sterling K. Brown showed that the guy has some humanity to him. But yeah, he is a hard-driving father. And he's putting way too much pressure on his son, Tyler, who, as the movie shows, is an avid wrestler, and yet he's dealing with a lot of pain. He's got a serious shoulder injury, and then he starts taking some medication he should not be taking, which his dad has on the side. All of a sudden, now he's got some drugs in the system. He's dealing with some other stress. He's got some stress here with his girlfriend, Alexis, played by Alexa Demi. And also now the story really takes on a different current. And I got to tell you, man, that first hour of Waves was about as strong as any motion picture in 2019. They hit the ground running, writer-director Trey Edward Schultz, as it shows what this life is like for a high schooler. No matter where you came from, I think we can appreciate the life of a high school kid who comes from a you know well-intentioned family, but... You got a terrible injury. You're trying to push through typical jock. Hey, it's not that bad. I can do it. I can do it. It's okay. And also the doctor gives you devastating news. In addition to that, you got a girl and all of a sudden, wait, she's pregnant. Okay, now there's a lot of pressure there. She's not sure what's happened with the baby. In addition to that, like I mentioned, you got the drugs and all the rest of it. And I'm not going to give anything else away except to say it builds to a crescendo, which is so vividly rendered. I mean, it is, it is propulsive filmmaking from Trey Edward Schultz. And then the movie takes a completely different turn. And by the way, one cautionary note, because uh, there is a scene of domestic violence, which is very powerful. So I just I kind of want to warn people almost like as a disclaimer, if you are you know, the victim of such, particularly squeamish about that, you should know that going in because it was um, very impactful. The second half of the film, though, focuses instead on Tyler's sister, Emily. And here's the problem for me. The first half of Waves, like I said, was as good as any movie of the year. The second half, though, is much, much different. Whereas the first half is, is aggressive, the second half is quieter, and he's going for a state of contemplation. But it's also much more slight. And I just didn't find the second half nearly as gripping as the first half of the film. You know, you've got the story of Emily and what she's dealing with and, and you know, her love interest and trying to find love. And they also try to dive into this other story of fathers and sons, which I didn't think worked nearly as well. It was a little bit clunky in the way they were trying to combine the two. So listen, for the performances, particularly Calvin Harrison Jr. playing Tyler and uh, Sterling K. Brown as Ronald and Taylor Russell. Listen, Canadian actress. I'm going to support her as Emily. She is a good actress, and I'm curious to see what else she's going to do. But I did think the second half wasn't nearly as strong as the first half. But honestly, I could see why people appreciate the film. Uh, in terms of the way that it's shot by Trey Edward Schultz, I mean, again, he's a director I think owes uh, something to, you know, maybe David Gordon Green, who did George Washington. Again, a great coming-of-age film. He uses a lot of different colors and oversaturation and, you know, soft focus. And there's like a kaleidoscope of colors here. He loves this one camera shot you know, of the camera rotating at a 360-degree angle. He actually starts the movie like that while the kids are driving. He uses it a, three, a few other times as well. So maybe that'll kind of become his trademark, the way that Spike Lee has that camera shot he always likes to use of, uh, you know, dollying while the camera's on a guy's face. So Trey Edward Schultz now perhaps will be known for the 360-degree camera. But certainly a very colorful film. And I thought it worked because it's, you know, it's set in South Florida, so you always picture the, the gaudy colors and can be a little bit tacky as well. But 
That's the film Waves. A couple other reviews here in Hornadale, Washington Post. The environment that Schultz so meticulously constructs is inhabited by actors whose focus and seriousness of purpose cuts through the noise to create a sense of groundedness and connection. Also, Alex Godfrey of Empire, a compassionate meditation on love, loss, and family. Waves is hyper-stylish yet emotionally grounded. Despite some very high drama, it has a huge heart and hits you where it hurts. Joe, your thoughts on Waves? I just want to echo what you said about Sterling K. Brown. He's he's fantastic. I'm sure he gave an incredible performance. And I'm reviewing the SAG Awards again. He was the only person nominated from a network show to be nominated for the SAGs. And he lost to Peter Dinklage um, for Game of Thrones this year. You know, a couple of years ago, so like I said, I met Sterling K. Brown like three years ago at Celebrity Softball. I met Justin Hartley two years ago, I want to say at Celebrity Softball. And what I said to him was, hey... I don't watch network drama. I don't mean to sound like an elitist. And he kind of laughed. And I said, but I hear the best thing on network TV is your show, This Is Us. And he was like, oh, thanks very much. But I think he's doing very well for himself. Great looking guy. Wife's a knockout. Obviously, the show's a hit. So I'm glad you mentioned that point, Joe. I feel like network TV isn't nearly as good as cable, with the exception of This Is Us. That seems to be a show that people really like and the critics really get behind as well. Yeah, it seems to be a show. I mean, it has its ups and downs. I heard one of the seasons is kind of slow, but that it really tugs on the heartstrings. But not to get too much on This Is Us, Wave seems like a, a great movie, and I can't wait to watch it. Next one is A Hidden Life. Based on real events, A Hidden Life is the story of an unsung hero, Franz Jagerstather, who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II. When the Austrian peasant farmer is faced with the threat of execution for treason, it is his unwavering faith and his love for his wife, Fanny, and children that keeps his spirit alive. By the way, I gave Waves three Maple Leafs. In the case of A Hidden Life, listen, you hear Malik and you're interested, okay? And I've never seen Badlands. I understand it's supposed to be a great film, Martin Sheen. You know, I've seen a trailer for Days of Heaven. Again, I've never seen that either. Two major Terrence Malick films. But I love The Thin Red Line. When that came out in 1998, he hadn't made a movie in 20 years since Days of Heaven. And I said, listen, I find this film more powerful, more impactful than Saving Private Ryan, which was the other big war film of 1998. So I can appreciate Malick's work. Now, Tree of Life... Again, beautifully shot, but I found it confounding. You'll get critics who called that one of the best films of the year, one of the best films of the decade. And those people like me, you're like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. But there is a real reverie to his films. And in the case of A Hidden Life, especially early on, I said this is dazzling because it is, again, Terrence Malick doing what he does. Uh, the heavy voiceover, montage of scenes, a little bit of slow motion, loves his violins. Like If I meet Terrence Malick, I'm giving him a violin. Every one of his scores, heavy on the violins, you know. But the problem is, after about an hour or so of the film, it starts to actually dip into satirical means. I swear, at times I felt like I'm watching an SNL movie. I was like, all right, enough of the montages. It's almost like a director who's known for this. If you do too much of it, it's almost, you know, kind of dives into caricature. And I could almost, literally, I'm picturing an SNL <laughs> sketch making fun of a Terrence Malick movie, having this portentous voiceover, and here we are, the lilies in the grass. And there's the shot again of the trees swaying and shots of clouds. And, and after a while, there's only so much of that you can take. And yet, at the same time, it's very poetic. It's this rumination of the film. And if that's a style, I can appreciate it. So to me, it's a mixed bag. You know, in this case, I'm going to give A Hidden Life two and a half Maple Leafs. You know, I can't give it more than that. Two to me is an average grade. Three is very good. So I'm saying it's a good movie. Maybe I should even go two Maple Leafs because I got to be honest with you. It is a long movie. I mean, it's two hours and 50 minutes. As Jeffrey M. Anderson of Common Sense Media says, no one quite captures nature's beauty and slowness as well as Terrence Malick does, but his mastery only barely saves this three-hour long story that's full of misery, despair, 
and hopelessness. John Anderson of Wall Street Journal, the director has found the ideal vehicle for his cosmic inquiries in his creative film that is mournful, memorable, and emotionally exhilarating. I can't agree with that part. Ian Freer of Empire. If you don't like Malick's movies, A Hidden Life Won't Convert You, but this is the filmmaker on sublime form, putting his artistry and obsessions at the service of something frighteningly relevant. Listen, the story itself is amazing. The fact that this was going on, that there's this guy who is you know, a conscientious objector to the Nazi movement, and there's nothing beyond the fact that he says, this is not right. You know, this is horrible what, what these people are doing, and I'm not going to support it. And slowly but surely, the tension builds, and all of a sudden, he's being rounded up, he's thrown in prison, and it's because of the fact he's not Jewish, he just doesn't support Nazis and what it represents. So I think the story is impactful, and it certainly has some moments, but for me, it's tough to recommend it because of the, the length and just the, you know, the lack of narrative drive. But within the same breath, I appreciate that Terrence Malick is a unique filmmaker, and if you love his films, that you should see it. Ty Burr, the Boston Globe, regardless of your spiritual persuasions, should you see A Hidden Life? Honestly, I think everyone should. The film is overlong, but worthy with Malick's by now standard cinematic ticks, couples frolicking idyllically in meadows, murmured pensies on the soundtrack, gathering a great and righteous weight. The movie takes its place along Martin Scorsese's silence as a work of true solemnity, one that wonders what we owe the divine in our worldly life. If the Scorsese film is arguably about the profoundest of doubts, a hidden life is something different. It's an act of faith. Maybe Malik knows we'll be needing it. And I tell you, that review is better than the movie. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. If you're a fan of Terrence Malik, you should see it. But it did make me think at times, hey, for all those that didn't like silence, this is probably what it felt like to them. You're watching a movie that just takes way too long to get to anywhere where it needs to go. Matthias Schoenertz, by the way, who is in The Mustang, which is one of my honorable mentions of the year, he's in the film. The main actor is August Deal. He's in one of the Tarantino movies. I think he may have been in Inglorious Bastards, actually. He plays the lead actor in the movie, uh, and Bruno Gantz is in there as well, playing Judge Lubin. So, A Hidden Life. Joe, you a fan of Terrence Malick? Yeah, I like Terrence Malick a lot, but it, it sounds like you're more in agreement with Ian Freer of Empire when he says, if you don't like Malick movies, A Hidden Life won't convert you. Is that is that fair? I think it's 100% true. If you like his stuff, you like those poetic meditations and the fact that he, he takes his time for the story to unfold and lots of languorous shots, then hey, he, that's the one. But you're right. Otherwise, it's not going to work for you. One more film before we get to Justin Chang of the LA Times. That would be American Factory, which is Academy Award nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars, which is two and a half weeks away. In post-industrial Ohio, a Chinese billionaire opens a new factory in the husk of an abandoned General Motors plant. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America. So the story feels a lot of ways like a, like a Michael Moore documentary. This plant closes, and you feel so bad for the citizens there of Ohio as they, you know, it shows what's happened in their lives, and they were making good money per hour, now what are we going to do? And so all of a sudden, this Chinese company says, okay, well, Fu Yao which uh, is led by Jimmy Wang, who's uh, the vice president. Okay, well, we're going to put a plant there in Ohio, and we're going to have a lot of Chinese workers, but have a lot of American workers as well. Like, oh, my God, like, you've seen this happen so much. It's heartbreaking across America in the heartland. A factory closes, people lose their jobs. If the factory comes back, all right, here the story takes on a different element. And there's certainly some funny moments as, you know, they kind of get this fish out of water feel to it. Like one of the Americans, he's so ingratiating and welcoming to the Chinese. He said, I invited him over for Turkey. I got the biggest dirty bird I can get. I got a giant ham. And then I gave him a bunch of guns. And you got shot to these Chinese guys shooting guns. Because listen, I know the guns are outlawed in China. So that they were so excited to actually, you know, shoot a gun. And you're going, okay, well, this is an interesting way of, of this guy trying to, uh, you know, endear himself to uh, people who are obviously from a different country. The directors are Stephen Bogner and Julia Reichert, by the way. They did a, a previous 
a short film. So this is an extension. I believe the short was about the plant closing 10 years ago. So now this is interesting. They made a documentary about this. Also, it comes from the production company of Barack and Michelle Obama. So this is the first film, I believe, first documentary under their production studio. So it's going to get a lot of buzz for that. If you're wondering about American Factory, why you've heard of it, you might have heard of the Oscar nomination. You might have heard of the fact that the Obamas are behind it. But ultimately, I can't I can't recommend this film. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. I just thought it was too long and dealt way too much into the details of what these societies are acclimating to. There's some funny moments, especially when the Chinese are warning them about the Americans. They go, listen, Americans have an absurd amount of confidence. The way that they're raised, that they're told by their parents they can do anything, they can do great things, they have way too much confidence, and they're also way too slow at the job. They're not nearly productive enough. They got fat fingers and that arrogance. And meantime, the Chinese, you know, their impression of them is that workaholics never take a day off, never take holidays off, just constantly grinding, like just no life, whatever, ignore your wife and kids. I got to work, I'm going to work. And that's it. Their work ethic is second to none. So those moments are amusing, but I just thought as a documentary, just doesn't hold my sway or interest the entire time. It's kind of delving in familiar material. Like I said, I've seen this before with a Michael Moore film. Uh, I've seen before, you know, with, with companies try to integrate and why there can be challenges to it. And it isn't necessarily an optimistic movie. I mean, it just shows that this plant is here, but there's going to be challenges to try to make it happen. So Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly, we're going to try to get on the pod at some point, liked it. She said it sharply delineates the possibilities and the limits of a modern global economy. And David Fear of Rolling Stone wrote, American Factory sets out to chart what's supposed to be a test run for the future of the auto industry and an example of positive international relations. It ends up capturing a cross-cultural car wreck in slow motion. American Factory, nominated for Best Documentary. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Joe, I can't recommend this film. All right, I guess, I guess I, I, I won't, I won't go after. Do you think the Obamas will be at the Oscars this year? Great question. I haven't yet looked at goldderby.com to check out what's the favorite for documentary. Next week on the pod, I'll be reviewing a couple more documentaries, The Edge of Democracy, which is about the political climate in Brazil. And I'll also be reviewing Honeyland, which is not only nominated for Best Documentary, but also Best Foreign Film. It's about a beekeeper from Macedonia. So I don't know if American Factory is the favorite, but certainly nominated. So I would think the Obamas will be in attendance. Yes. Okay. All right. That's something else to look out for. No question. Now it's time for our film critic, terrific guest, Justin Chang, right now. A real pleasure to bring in Justin Chang, a film critic for the LA Times and for NPR's Fresh Air, a regular contributor as well to KPCC's Film Week. Before joining the Times, he was the chief film critic at Variety. In 2014, he received the inaugural Roger Ebert Award from the African American Film Critics Association. A Southern California native and USC graduate lives with his wife and daughter in Pasadena. Justin, I've been a fan ever since you loved the movie Silence as much as I did. I thought it was the best picture of 2016, and of course, it was ignored by the Academy. Uh, Rodrigo Prieto got nominated for cinematography, and that was it. So I've been a fan ever since then. Thanks so much for coming on Cinephile. Thank you for those very kind words, Adam, and a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having oh, me. Oh, listen, you're terrific critic, because not only do you write well, but you're clearly passionate about movies and, and know of what you speak. So let's dive into, first, the movies that have made a lot of noise in terms of the Academy Award nominations and the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, and all the rest of it. And then we'll dive into some other films that you may have really enjoyed, which perhaps were overlooked. So let's start first with The Irishman. Um, obviously, it arrived with a huge amount of fanfare, $160 million uh, from budget from uh, Netflix. And obviously, you've got Scorsese and De Niro and Pesci rejoining forces. And 
the first time you got Pacino and Marty together. Now it feels like the movie's cooled a little bit. Yes, it's got the 10 Oscar nominations, but 0 for 5 at the Globes does not win best ensemble at the SAGs. Your thoughts on The Irishman and perhaps why it's not garnering. I mean, it's, it's got a claim, no question about it. Clearly, critics have loved it, but it's not, uh, not winning as many awards as I would have liked to have seen. It's not winning as many awards. Um, I think it's a great film, um, like you, and I, uh, I think that it's funny that you started by mentioning Silence, uh, because I think these two movies are really companion pieces in a way, uh, even though Silence is obviously not a gangster movie. Um, and the resemblances between the Irishman and Goodfellas are maybe are more apparent, but um, I think Scorsese is in in an even more you know ruminative phase of his career, as one would expect uh, in this kind of later stage of his career. And he's made you know two brilliant movies about you know that really take the toll of you know one is about a priest and one is about a professional killer, and um, it says something about. Scorsese's genius that he can get so under the skin of both of these men um, living in different eras um, and say really profound things, I think, about about guilt, um, about about Catholicism, about violence and um, and about spirituality as well. I mean, I think I think of The Irishman as a deeply spiritual film, as many of Scorsese's movies are. I think that the. perhaps if you want to call it underperformance of the movie, despite, you know, of course it got 10 Oscar nominations, it's clearly respected. Um, you know, Scorsese doesn't, Scorsese movies are often slept on by the Academy in their years, you know, with the exception of The Departed, of course, which was um, a, an overdue career recognition for him winning best director. Finally, after many um, times when he was only a bridesmaid, it's um, I think that there is something I don't know. It's the, the Academy members, you know, and the membership is changing, of course, but I think that they, they clearly love, respect Scorsese, but when it comes time to, they have, they have trouble just mustering that enthusiasm, you know, needed to push it over the line. And I think that this, I mean, you know, we can talk about, you know, does the Netflix factor come into play? Is that movie, you know, having more or less impact because of it, you know, because of people are streaming it and responding to it. My sense was that people were actually really responding to the movie in a, in a, really exciting way by having it in their living rooms at the same time. I am disappointed that it didn't have, you know, more of a theatrical presence than it did. And I say that as someone who saw it twice on the big screen. So, um, yeah, I, running time issues, whatever. I mean, I, I think it's, it is a shame. I do think that the competition is so strong this year that, um, it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't completely shock me that, uh, it's being passed over in favor of other movies. Lots of great points there, Justin, and namely, which, like you said, there's just other great films out there. I mean, listen, Parasite's phenomenal. 1917 is an amazing achievement from Sam Mendes and, and Roger Deakins specifically. I want to go further than what you're talking about, Scorsese and spirituality, because that's why I like The Irishman so much, is that those who say, well, he's already driven this terrain again, you'd be, you'd be awfully mistaken to say that. It's such a misguided statement, because as you pointed out, The Irishman is a very elegiac, mournful film. I mean, it felt a lot of ways, like you said, an extension of silence. I mean, those scenes in the nursing home and even the buildup to what happens to Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, Marty was so good in just, you know, the camera, which is always so kinetic normally in Goodfellas or in Taxi Driver, roaming restlessly as Travis Bickle sees all the urban decay or in Raging Bull, that great steady cam as Jake LaMotta goes in the ring. Here, the camera is still and silent. He really lets the moments play out. And I thought it was just excruciating and beautifully rendered and so poignant. 
And I, I listen, like you said, if he doesn't win because people think there's other better movies, that's fine. But this is a different film from Scorsese and really shows why he's a true master because he can actually challenge himself within a genre that he's known for, that he's defined in so many ways. It's beautifully said. I mean, I uh, the, the way you could, you know, writes and say so much just about the camera work in The Irishman and the way that, you know, the people of not the first person, we're not the first people to point this out. It's like the, you know, the opening shot of the movie, which seems to evoke in some ways, almost the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas and, and just other examples of like really kinetic, mobile, active camera work. And it still has that, but it's not that the energy has gone out of it, but just the tone of it is so different. And it, the camera moves like a ghost in that move in that movie. So many times it's like, there's something very spectral about um, the way it moves. And this is a movie, you know, this is an old man's movie in the sense that it's, uh, it is um, being, it is being told by a man at the end of his life, toward the end of his life. And hence, you know, the digital de-aging that has of course been the source of uh, much chatter and, and some you know, not controversy, but, uh, disagreement over its effectiveness in the movie. I had no problem with it. I mean, you know, there, it's clearly still a, a technique, a work in progress, perhaps, but I think the movie more than stands on its own, regardless of that. Yeah, I'm with you. Maybe it takes a little bit of a suspension of belief, but you're right. You still get the essence of it rather than seeing a younger actor play it. And, and you look at his career, Justin, I feel like, you know, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, those almost feel like locks when you look at his top five films. So presupposing that those are the form, by all means, go ahead and take a movie out of there and put another one in that you want. But if you had to pick his fifth best movie, I feel like it's a tie between The Irishman, between Silence. You might get some votes for yeah. Gangs of New York. I mean, it's really tough, right, to try to put his filmography in a top five. It is really hard, and we could go back to, you know, things like, you know, I'm very partial to Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. You know, it's just, I mean, the man is... Uh, he has one of the great indelible careers in American filmmaking, no question. So, um, and I do wonder if that sort of, you know, is there such, you know, is there Scorsese fatigue that is setting in among people, you know, people it's like, and you know, his movies are really rich, really deep dish experiences. Um, you know, you look at just his movies from the past decade alone with the Irishman, with silence, uh, the Wolf of wall street, shutter Island, all I think fabulous movies. Um, and but they they leave you they they're they're overwhelming you know just viscerally and and sensually and um and I think that <laughs> you you feel a little bit drunk sometimes after watching it. not not so much with silence that was more kind of aesthetic experience but um yeah I don't know I mean it's uh, I'm rooting for it I, I have to say you know I hope it doesn't go empty-handed on Oscar night the way Gangs of New York did also with ten nominations in its year but um, I am a huge fan of Parasite as well and that is a movie that kind of has my heart this year and that I'm rooting for in the, in the weeks to come. Um, I'm not as huge a fan of 1917, although I, I don't dislike it. I admire a lot of things about it. I would be a little bit disappointed if that is the answer that the Academy ultimately arrives at. I do think there were better movies and I think that it's technical achievements while very real and, and more complicated, I think, than they may seem at first glance. There is something stunty about it for me that held me back. Um, and, you know, I think that it's a it's an easier kind of, you know, he, he shot in the Sam Mendes shot and the great cinematographer Roger Deakins shot this movie in one long take. Well, actually, you know, technically two long takes you know, for me, <laughs> not to split hairs. But um, I think, you know, it's it's it's. It's mesmerizing, no question. It's it's absolutely gorgeous to watch um, in ways that I think are really beautiful and and also a little troubling. And I just think that that kind of technique is a really easier thing to latch onto as like 
technical genius, you know, you can laud that. And, you know, whereas I think, you know, but The Irishman and, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and other movies, you know, I think there's technical genius in there too, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's of a subtler um, kind. So I am, uh, yeah, but it's, it's really, it is very interesting to see how, you know, you have Scorsese, Tarantino, these two American heavyweights um, who feel like they're, you know, I mean, anything could happen still, but it, it does feel like they're being pushed to the side a little bit by these upstarts, you know, <laughs> Sam Mendes and Bong Joon-ho, on the other hand, who I just uh, am so happy to see him in this, in so prominent in this race and in this discussion. So, yeah, to your point yeah. about 1917, hopefully Roger Deakins can win 15th nomination. You know, the legendary cinematographer only has one the one time for Blade Runner 2049, and maybe Steve Zalian can win for adapted screenplay, and that could at least be some uh, recognition for the Irishman. But let's talk about Parasite, Justin, because you're passionate about it, as am I. When the Palm Door yeah. can, <laughs> and then it arrives. And, and you, the LA Film Critics Association, of course, which you are a member, Parasite choice for Best Picture, Bong Joon-ho Best Director. You guys did. Did give runner up to the Irishman for best picture and to Scorsese for best director. But this movie, I mean, you talk about a film that is awfully tough to categorize. You know, when I tell people, I say, just, just see it. Oh, what's it about? I, it's about class structure. What? That doesn't sound exciting. Well, then don't, do, I don't want to tell you anything. Okay. Is it a dark <laughs> comedy? Is it a thriller? Is it a horror movie? I don't want to tell you anything about it. Just go see it. And it's absolutely bonkers and it's brilliant and it's beautifully crafted. And you talk about tracking shots. I mean, Bong Joon Ho has a lot of uh, luxurious tracking shots in that movie and the element of surprise. And I'm with you. If we get to see, history and the fact it won the best ensemble at the SAG is absolutely notable. If this yep. is now a 1917 parasite type race and maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a little bit of uh, traction, although I must admit, I, I, I'm with you, man. If this one wins, this would be a hell of an <laughs> achievement. And it, and for anybody who quibbles out I, there because, oh, I'm not into foreign films, get over it, watch it, because it's about as accessible oh, as a foreign film as it gets, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is accessible. And um, I think, you know, Bong, no one said this better than Bong himself when he won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film and said, you know, once you get over the one-inch barrier, one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, you'll be, you know, get to experience so many more amazing movies. I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, you, know, as a, you know, as a film critic who writes about, you know, about films subtitled or not, um, I confess to, I, I don't get the resistance to it. And I know that, you know, not everyone is, is, is you know, goes to see, I, I know most people don't see as many movies as, as, as you and I and, and, and critics do. But um, I just think it's, I think it's pretty embarrassing that the Academy has never, um, it has nominated quite a, a fair number of uh, uh, non-English language movies for Best Picture, but has never given Best Picture to one. And I think Parasite has come as close, maybe closer than any other movie to, you know, it feels like the prize is in reach in a way that maybe it hasn't been, or maybe kind of some people had very high hopes for Roma last year. Um, you know, and uh, leaving aside what you think of either movie, it's like Parasite is certainly more overtly entertaining um, in, in a way that I think is really captivating members. I mean, I saw this movie at Cannes where it won the Palme d'Or, and as a longtime fan of director Bong, I was just thrilled to see that and that recognition for him i think he's been a great filmmaker for you know close to 20 years now um and and i do recommend if people are curious to check out more of his work to see movies like the host um and memories of murder and mother in particular the movies that he made um in korea before snowpiercer and okja although i do recommend those movies as well um it's just so, you know, this movie, you're right, it's like when you're introducing it, like, you don't want to say, it's about class struggle, and it's like, and it's about, yes, it is about that. It's also about family. It's about love and hate, and it's, it's, a, it's, 
it's a genre expanding. I mean, yes, it's a thriller and, and it's a dark comedy. Um, but the direction that it goes in writing about this movie was hard because you really don't want to give away too much of what happens, assuming that your readers haven't seen the movie yet. And so you're left to kind of describe something that um, just this movie seems to shapeshift every, you know, every half hour at the very least, maybe even less than that. Um, and yet it's all as mercurial as it is. It's just so beautifully controlled and directed and full of life. I was so thrilled to see um, those parasite actors who, you know, I get I, you know, they're they're Korean actors, not that well known in this country, except for Song Kang Ho, um, who's been a one of the biggest stars in Asia for, for a while now. Um, it was so thrilling to see them get that ensemble award from SAG. Um, and I think some of them should have been nominated for Oscars as well. Uh, that may be sadly a bridge too far, but I think that there is something about seeing these Korean actors, these Asian actors on stage, accepting prizes, receiving standing ovations. Uh, it's, it's, it reminds me that this is, it's thrilling. It's just, uh, you know, I, I, you know, and I say that as an Asian American person myself, I, I can't be completely um, unbiased in this. And I don't think I need to be unbiased. It's like, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, and it's, and people are not, you know, there, there's nothing tokenistic about it. I think this t- truly comes from genuine enthusiasm for this brilliant movie. Um, so for it <laughs> yeah i'm with you man and i i feel you on the whole just i, I have a korean american friends who are like hey listen we don't really don't win these things okay like i'm i'm proud as a korean american i'm just proud the movie's doing well and even myself as a visible minority i get happy seeing films from different cultures being represented as a film sure. lover seeing a foreign film potentially win best picture is a wonderful thing and i love the fact that lafc you guys did give song kung ho the winner for best supporting actor ahead of joe pesci and the irishman so I, it would have been nice i agree with you, to actually get an oscar nomination but i want to ask you also about pain and glory because when as soon as you guys gave Banderas the best actor I felt like that was a real bellwether for how this film uh, was received clearly did well at Cannes obviously a big name in Pedro Almodovar that you know foreign film fans and just you know learned film fans obviously know his work and all about my mother and talk to her and all the rest of it but the fact that Banderas broke through, a little surprising that he, he nudged out Taron Edgerton for Rocket Man. I would have loved to have seen De Niro recognized for the first time in a lead actor since Cape Fear, which was 91. But talk to me a little bit about Pain and Glory and, and uh, why you're particularly taken with Banderas' performance. Never nominated before, uh, playing a man who's uh, dealing with illness and uh, he tries out heroin. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure what to expect with the film, but I did think he was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, it's um I, I love this movie too. Um and I think if you are a Pedro Motovar fan, um there is something just deeply poignant about seeing him uh put some version of his own life on screen and, and Motovar has been, you know, kind of playful, I think, about how closely this movie uh mirrors his own life. Like is he is this really about him or is it, you know, a, a weave of reality and fiction? And I think it's a weave. Um but you know he and Banderas have made so many films together. And so this does feel like a career summation in some ways for both of them. And it was, yeah, you know, Antonio Banderas swept the LA film critics award uh, for best actor, also the New York film critics and the national society of film critics that they call it the trifecta in a way, because those are the, t- the three big uh, critics groups. And, um, you know, sometimes if you win that, that's a, you know, that obviously, is, is a powerful thing, but it, it, this year's best actor race, as you noted, um, was just so competitive that there was no guarantee that I was so relieved when Banderas made it in um, because uh, it was by no means a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, not only, you know, Taron Egerton and, and um, De Niro, 
uh, we can talk about Eddie Murphy and Dolomite is my name and Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems. Hello, you know, it's like when you look at the names that were left out, um, you could easily fill out a whole category just with the also rams and it would be a brilliant group of actors. So, but I'm so happy to see Banderas who, you know, who has not always, who has been a great actor for a while now and has not always been taken as seriously as he deserves to be. Uh, I think at least among maybe per- perhaps in his American movies, um, he is so just really exquisitely understated in this movie. Um, and yet there's so much that is being expressed, um, you know, he plays um, a gay, aging Spanish director who is having health problems and has a bad back and starts smoking heroin. You know, uh, it's a, you know, and, and you know, deals with deals with some addiction to that, and um, is meeting with old friends and you know, and arguing with old friends and really looking back at his career and looking at all the pain that he's experienced and wondering if he can take that still and transmute all of that into the glory of art. And so I think it's just a beautiful movie about regret and about moving past regret. And you're just with Banderas at every moment. I mean, he's it just gives this incredibly soulful and beautiful performance. Um, uh, so, and I think, you know, the, it's pretty clear that, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is going to win Best Actor. And, and I, you know, I, I have no problem with that personally, but um, it's a ridiculously stock field. I would be thrilled to see if, if Banderas, you know, it, you know, were to stage some sort of upset. And, you know, he he's Antonio Banderas. He has a lot of fans. Uh, so I, I think he's going to get a lot of votes uh, regardless of how the what the outcome finally is. Your list, clearly, you, you know, your best films of the year. I love the fact that you had films all over the place. You know what I mean? You had uh, Her Smell was in your top 20, Elizabeth Moss, which I haven't got around to. I've got the screener. Uh, High Life with Robert Pattinson, of course. The Lighthouse, that's a movie that was ignored except for cinematography. Uh, you know, Portrait of a Lady. I mean, there's lots of different films that you're going with. And I, I still have to see the souvenir. But one that I really loved is Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I had number four on my top 10 of the year. And I feel like, Justin, that's one of those movies that, okay, it wasn't, you know, lauded at least by the Academy, but enough film lovers have seen it or known about it. And the next film that Joe Talbot makes, the director, or the next film that Jonathan Majors or Jimmy Jimmy Fails is a part of, that people are going to know more about it. I feel like maybe it's like an early David Gordon Green film, right? George Washington didn't get nominated, but enough people knew about it and it kind of jumpstarted his career. Just talk a little bit about Talbot's movie and, and any other movies for you that that, uh, like I said, were under the radar, perhaps, that you'd like people to see and people to check out. Ashes, Purest White, I know you're a fan of as well. I was a fan of that. Um, I loved The Last Black Man in San Francisco, too. And um, it's just, it gives you this portrait of that city in that, I, I mean, I've spent my fair amount of my time in San Francisco, and I, I saw things about it that I just had not seen in a movie before. Um, and it, it's, it's also just a beautiful movie about you know, the many different kinds of black masculinity and black manhood that exist uh, in, in San Francisco and, 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 and everywhere. Um, Jimmy Fails uh, gives a lovely performance and he is playing, you know, speaking of like with Pain and Glory, you know, in this case, he is actually playing a version of his own life story that um, he and his uh, best friend, uh, Joe Talbot, have brought to the screen really beautifully. Um, it's, it's the kind of movie um, that... I often feel this way about so many American independent movies that have just striking originality of vision and, and gorgeous film craft and, but don't find the audience that they deserve. And I feel like in this year, when you, you know, you look at the top kind of bunch of Oscar nominees, 
um, many studio movies and, and some and some Netflix movies, of course, as well, that are sort of dominating the conversation. And so movies like Last Black Man in San Francisco, unfortunately, fall into the middle somewhere where I just don't think they are seen and promoted widely enough to get the recognition they deserve. Other movies like this are, um, you know, Diane, beautiful independent film with a performance by Mary Kay Place, who won the LA Film Critics Award for Best Actress. Uh, the Farewell, Lulu Wong's, um, you know, charming and very perceptive movie about her family um, and just the experiences of, of culture clash and generational clash that she experienced herself. Lots of directors sort of plumbing the depths of their own experience um, and, and coming up with a fiction that is, um, I think, really insightful about that experience. Um, you mentioned Ash's Purest White, which I paired um, with the Irishman on my list. And I liked it. I did a top 20, which I know is kind of ridiculous. And I like to do these pairings because I think that movies are in conversation with each other. And as you said, uh, it's like, I, I like to cast a very wide net because I think movies are more than just what the studios are putting out and what we're talking about during Oscar season. There's so much great cinema out there that just does not, um, you know, for reasons of marketing budgets and just reasons of, you know, name recognition, just don't get, the, you know, it's my job as a critic to help people find those movies because some of them are really great. Ash's Purest White is a um, wonderful Chinese movie from the director Jia Zhangke, and this was my favorite performance, maybe by any actor in any movie this year, Zhao Tao, who has been his collaborator for many years now, and she plays... She basically plays a gangster's mall and um, who is way smarter and way more capable and way more resilient than her gangster boyfriend. And it's and I, I paired it with The Irishman because it is both movies that unfold over quite a length of time. And Ashes Pierce White unfolds not over quite as long a span as The Irishman, but uh, over about you know two decades roughly. And um, also just about regret and the passage of time and what we do with it. Um, it's a really gripping film and I hope people, more people see it. Yeah. I love that you paired it with the Scorsese because then I was like, all right, well the fact that Scorsese's <laughs> championed his work for a while, I'm like, okay, great. That it, It's like, uh, you know, back then yeah. we'd go to Blockbuster and say, okay, under the, you know, the gangster genre. Oh, if you like this, then you should see this. You know what I mean? If you go to a bookstore, oh, if you like this book, you should read this. So I think that's actually very exactly. smart that you pair those together. <laughs> uh, last one for you, cause it's always fun. I mean, God, you see so many movies and I'm sure at times you're just exhausted by it. But uh, I once, Owen Gleiberman once told me, he said, you know, I take a little bit of a perverse joy in really crushing a movie sometimes because he goes, you know, I have to sit through so many. And, and the ones that are great are rewarding. But he goes, you know, when, when something really stinks, I, I enjoy writing a review for a bad movie because he goes, in some ways as a writer, it allows you to really kind of stretch out those muscles and uh, w- without being, you know, mean spirited, he goes, you can really kind of dive in and tell people why it's nonsense. Is there a movie particularly for you? I don't want to say necessarily the worst film of the year, although you can do that if you like, but just maybe an over overrated movie like for example i i just didn't <laughs> care for joker i just thought it was so deeply derivative of scorsese's sure. films like king of yeah. comedy and taxi driver and as you mentioned joaquin phoenix is going to win which to me is absurd i just think it's a very mannered over-the-top performance if i had to see him one more time dancing in slow-mo in his underwear i'm like all right i think i've had enough now but <laughs> is, is there is there a movie for you that you go hey i i get it why some would like it didn't work for me yeah i think it's funny um and yeah i i, I like joker way more than you, although it's not the film of the year by, you know, by any stretch of my imagination. Um, I think it's interesting that two of the most polarizing and popular movies this year are Joker and Jojo Rabbit, two Joe movies. Um, in, in a, in a weird kind of, uh, what a, what, there's a weird pairing for you, right? Um, and one is very, 
nihilistic and one is, you know, sort of more upbeat, humanist, feel good, whatever you want to call it. Um, and Jojo Rabbit is the one that I just could not stomach, even though I recognize that, you know, Taika Waititi is a very talented filmmaker and there is, uh, there is, there are things about the movie that I did respond to, but taken together, um, I do think that this movie, um, you know, adapted from a novel and then, which then tacked on this, uh, Hitler as a young boy's imaginary friend, played by YTT himself, uh, was just did not cohere in any way for me. Um, not even close thematically, narratively. I didn't find it funny. I didn't find it charming. I didn't find it feel good. Um, and I don't, I don't really want to feel good when I'm watching a movie about World War II and the Holocaust anyway. So, um, so I just found this to be just total pablum that really tries to sentimentalize um, the Holocaust. And in a way that is uh, even more, you know, I, a lot of people have brought up Life is Beautiful, um, a movie that I actually like more than some people in this. I don't think they even deserve to be mentioned in the same breath. Um, I just, I, Jojo, I just, I, I just recoiled from what this movie was trying to push, push on me. And, but it seems to be working for a lot of people. Um, I didn't review it for the Times just because I, you know, some, it's funny. I actually do share Owen's philosophy um, that, uh, yes, it absolutely can be fun to slam a movie sometimes. And it does, it does work out some muscles that uh, you hopefully are not working out too much because I do think my time is better spent writing about movies that I like or love or that are at least worth, you know, um, but it, worth, worth paying some attention to. But I do like writing. It's, it, it is fun to write about a bad movie sometimes. And it's easier to do that and more fun than to write about um, something that's just run of the mill mediocre. And that's where, of course, most movies fall right in the middle. And, um, it's harder to, um, it's like, I don't feel passionate about this movie, but I don't hate it either. That's, those are the hard, the hardest ones to write. When you're writing about something that you love or hate passionately, um, that's, I think, where the joys of this job lie. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it, right? Uh, you mentioned your top 20 movies there. You also have 15 honorable mentions, so you really definitely threw a lot out there. I, I'm with you. The first hour of Waves I thought was as good as any movie this year. I just love to go see Clemency. I have that to screener, so I look forward to seeing Alfred Woodard in that film as well. And I love that you included Midsommar in your honorable mentions because, I, again, that to me was a movie that was just, <laughs> I, it feels weird laughing because I just think it was a dark comedy in so many ways and just uh, maybe at times it was too ghastly that I was laughing. But you talk about a unique film. Ari Aster with Midsommar was certainly doing something different. I'm a big fan of Ari Aster's. I think he and um, and also Robert Eggers uh, with The Lighthouse, two horror movies uh, released by A24 this year. Um, Lighthouse got a cinematography nomination, very deservedly so. Um, you know, these are movies that are um, being very, very playful with horror and just beautifully made. Um, and I... You know, if I'd gotten a chance, I'd, I'd love to rewatch movies when I can. And I think that Midsommar, which I watched again, it's like, you know, honorable mentions. These rankings are so arbitrary to me at the end of the day. It's like, if I'd seen it again, depends when you see it sometimes. It's like, that might have well earned a place in my top 20 because I kept thinking about that movie all summer long when I saw it and also just in the month since. And it, um, what I love about it is it's, it's, it's a horror movie, but its main goal is not to, scare you or you know assault you with jump uh, jump scares or anything this movie brings you into this daylit world you know with this you know scandinavian death cult and um but it's not just about that it's like it's it's it, the movie casts a spell 
it's a great relationship movie, a great, great breakup movie. Um, it's really, really sick, and I kind of loved it. So, yeah, I'm glad <laughs> you did, too. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I love that review. Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He's brilliant. Ryan Coogler, in particular, there's a name people know, right? In 2016, when accepting an award, he praised Justin for his work and said, you know, this dude is crazy talented. This is artistry and a newfound respect for what it is that film critics do. Find all those voices in there that are places you might not think to look. He in particular said he loved the fact you raved about uh, the film The Pro- a Prophet, which I remember uh, did do very well, especially on the, uh, the festival circuit. So, listen, man, you got fans like me and Coogler and there's plenty more big names out there. I really appreciate your time today on Cinefile, Justin. Best of luck. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for our Mount Rushmore coming-of-age movies. Once again, thanks to Justin Chang. Follow him on Twitter. He's terrific. Um, in honor of Waves, which is a, a high school, well, it's almost a high school movie. It's about a guy in high school, and then a lot of stuff happens to him. So I don't want to make it sound like it's upbeat here, like Dirty Dancing. But yeah, Mount <laughs> Rushmore of coming-of-age films. So this is a group here we look at. You know, you get lots of different films. You get Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, movies like that. So what kind of uh, Mount Rushmore can we put together here? So out of the gate, I'm going to go ahead and mention Lady Bird. That's right. I'm giving love to Greta Gerwig. I didn't think I'd love the film. I said, oh, why am I going to relate to this movie? But I thought it was exquisitely done. I love the work of Saoirse Ronan and the entire cast. That scene of Laurie Metcalf after she drops her daughter off and drives away. Heartbreaking for any parent out there. I thought it showed how flawed mothers and daughters can be and how tricky that relationship can be. I'm a huge fan of Lady Bird. Right out of the gate, I'm putting that in my Mount Rushmore coming-of-age movies. I also love Rushmore, Wes Anderson's movie, She's my Rushmore. I mean, it's just so well done. Bill Murray's so funny. Uh, the whole cast, Jason Schwartzman. The fact that he's playing Serpico, one of the high school plays, was fantastic. Really good soundtrack as well. I thought it had all the bittersweet melancholy of growing up, and it's also really funny, which you always hope these kinds of movies have. I kind of wanted to include the Royal Tenenbaums as well because it is also a coming of age, but that's fine. It's more of adults who are uh, uh, nurturing as well and trying to find themselves. So I will not include that. The next one I will include is The Graduate. It's Jeffrey Lyons' favorite movie. Ben Lyons' his dad, Jeffrey Lyons, famed film critic who recently was with me on MLB Network. He said The Graduate's his favorite movie, Plastics. I mean, you got Benjamin Braddock, Dustin Hoffman, Breakthrough Performance, Mike Nichols directed it. You know, just him floating there in the water, you realize this guy is really doing a lot of different things here. But I thought it was really going to hit the zeitgeist of its time. Although Dan Stanzik is not a fan. Look up previous cinephile why Dan did not care for The Graduate. Very funny rationale from my man there. And one more, I'd love to get uh, say anything on the list because I, I love John Cusack with the Ghetto Blaster playing a little Peter Gabriel in your eyes. But instead, I'll go with Rebel Without a Cause. James Dean, you're tearing me apart. Immortalized forever, gone too soon. I mean, that's you, you think of coming of age, you're thinking of James Dean in a red jacket. That's my list. I'm going to exclude films like uh, American Graffiti, which I would like to get George Lucas in there. Eighth Grade from Bo Burnham a year ago was great. I met Bo and Elsie Fisher at the Critics' Choice Awards. He's a great dude. Previous guest on Cinephile. Listen to that. I did like Eighth Grade a lot, but I couldn't get it on my list. And honorable mention also to Moonlight. Moonlight won Best Picture. I love Barry Jenkins. That's my Mount Rushmore. Lady Bird, Rushmore, The Graduate, and Rebel Without a Cause. And way to get Rushmore on the Mount Rushmore of uh, coming-of-age movies. <laughs> Too easy, right? Yeah, Too right? Easy. I mean, it's appropriate. Um, I am I 100% agree with you. Lady Bird has to go on. Um, Cersei Barona and her performance in that. Greta Gerwig wrote, directed it. So good. Um, I'm also going to go with Itu Mama Tambien. 
by Alfonso yes. Cuaron. Great. And your mother, movie. too. And your yes. And just great movie. Two boys traveling with this older woman. It's also incredibly funny. I'll uh, throw that m- movie on. Almost Famous, just because I'm a huge classic rock guy. When I saw it when I was younger, I just latched onto it. So I'm putting on Almost Famous. And then I'm going to throw you a curveball. It's this animated movie called Spirited Away. Have you ever seen it? Oh, uh, Miyazaki, right? Y- yep, Miyazaki, yeah. And I think this is, uh, it's constantly raked as one of his best movies. Really weird movie, beautiful, gorgeous animation. I'm going to throw Spirited Away on as well. Wow. I, I've never seen it. I believe 2003, if memory recalls, but I remember Miyazaki Spirited Away. It was Academy Award nominated for sure for, for animated film, and I believe, uh, I don't know if it was Roger Ebert, but I remember one of the critics that I follow was a huge fan of that. I like that outside the box. By the way, my, my brother finally saw Blowout just because of you, Joe. He only gave it two Maple Leafs. He really? said, because uh, I said, I'll see it just for De Palma. He said, it is really De Palma, but he wasn't uh, particularly taken away by it. But he, he did still love the fact that you praised Keanu Reeves and Call Me Maybe. Give me your brother's number because he. I got a few more recommendations for him if he's going to keep doing this. It's great. Uh, if your brother's listening right now, watch Spirited Away, which I will also <laughs> recommend for you, Adnan, because you can watch it with the whole family. Yeah, that's a good point. I can watch that one with my kids. Unlike I Lost My Body, which is nominated for Best Animated Film, and I put it on with my kids, and uh, let's just say there's some very objectionable conduct in that film. It's not for kids. <laughs> Even though it's an animated movie, not for children. Oh, boy. All right. I'll cross that off. All right, now it's time for Total Recall, a fun segment always to do here. We're doing films from 2002, so it's the 2003 Oscars. Kick it off with Best Picture. What do we got, Joe? We have Chicago, Gangs of New York, The Hours, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and The Pianist. Wasn't crazy about the pianist. I remember it, we're going to get to best director in a second. Polanski won, but I remember it being like, okay, it was emotional and fraught with peril. But I didn't think it was best picture worthy. Lord of the Rings, always good to see a film like that recognized, but I wouldn't say best picture. Never saw Chicago because I'm not a big song and dance man. And the hours, I liked the performances. I didn't think it was a great film. I'm going to go with Gangs in New York. I know it's flawed. I know the Cameron Diaz subplot is unnecessary, not particularly well done. It would have been better rather than 252 if it was 232. But I still love the epic scope of it. I loved Daniel Day-Lewis's towering performances, Bill the Butcher. Uh, it was the first time you had Leo and Marty working together. I mean, I love the production design. Dante Ferretti shooting at Fellini's Genetita Studios. The music, I thought, was really well done. Uh, I just, I really got swept up by gangs in New York. That whole idea, and which is a very timely topic, by the way, immigration and what's a real American and who should be allowed here and what the melting pot of cultures at that time. I loved gangs of New York. I completely agree with you. I got to go with gangs of New York. That's one of the few movies that whenever it's on TV, I find myself just watching it to the end, no matter what. So I'll go with the gangs of New York as well. Amsterdam. I'm New York. All right. Best director. (laughs) We have Roman Polanski, The Pianist, Rob Marshall, Chicago, Martin Scorsese, Gangs of New York, Stephen Daldry, The Hours, and Pedro Almodovar for Talk to Her. Uh, as I spoke with Justin Chang, Pedro Almodovar, you know, terrific director, obviously well-known by those who like their foreign films and world cinema and such. 
Talker is a great movie, and I, I almost would have liked to have seen him recognized here. He'd be my runner-up pick, but I would go with Scorsese for Gangs of New York. At the time, had never been, uh, never won the Academy Award. Won four years later for The Departed. Just the whole scope of the film. He wanted to make it for twenty-five years, and he loved the idea of this melting pot of culture and the the performances he's able to get from DDL and also Jim Broadbent. And I mean, some of the camera work, the cinematography is amazing. I mean, that that first ten minutes, that first fight scene, the way it was edited and so well crafted, and there's even this incredible tracking shot where it follows people. People literally signing up for the war, and then it follows this coffin as it goes up on the ship. I mean, it, it is incredibly directed. I would go with Marty. I'm going to go with Marty, too, for Gangs of New York. Maybe Rob Marshall. I'm surprised that he didn't get it, because Hollywood really does seem to like those song and dance numbers, um, but I would go with Martin Scorsese as well. All right, beautiful. How about Best Actor? Adrian Brody, the pianist, Nicolas Cage, Adaptation, Michael Caine, The Quiet American, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gangs of New York, and Jack Nicholson about Schmidt. Well, here's the thing. DDL has won so much, even though, I, I mean, listen, like I said, Bill the Butcher might be one of, one of the best performances he's ever done. I, I want to kind of spread the wealth here because it'd be too easy for me to give it to him and he'd have like four Oscars for Best Actor. I don't think Brody should have won and he never capitalized on it. Like his movies since The Penis are so brutal. Guy wins an Oscar and he just mails it in. <laughs> I would not give it to Michael Caine, although I did like The Quiet America. But yeah, Brody, like, you talk about a guy who wins an Oscar and did nothing with it. Like, hey, dude, we give you an Oscar. I'm going to do nothing with it. I'm going to mail it in and do nothing the rest of my career that's worthy of this Academy Award winning performance. Gangs in New York, again, to reiterate, is my favorite of these performances, and I love Danny Lewis. But I like the way Joe's inflection was on the nomination because Nicolas Cage adaptation would have been an amazing win. I think it's his second best performance for Leaving Las Vegas, which he won for. But he's amazing. Playing Charlie and Donald Kaufman, playing two sides of the coin, one brother who's, who's riddled with self-loathing and just insecure and miserable. And the other one is so happy-go-lucky. I thought Cage was incredible as uh, Charlie and Donald Kaufman. So I would, I would vote for him for adaptation. And a close second, by the way, would be Jack Nicholson about Schmidt. Because again, a character... Uh, actor who was, you know, known for being so over the top. I mean, About Schmidt was one of his most restrained performances. That last scene where he's reading in Dugu's letter and he tears up. I mean, Alexander Payne got a truly great performance from Jack Nicholson. So that that's a tough category, but I would go with Nick Cage. How about that? Wow, you and I are on the same page today. I would, uh, I, I just want to say the sentence Oscar winner, Nicholas Cage, uh, just whenever I refer to him. So I would give it to him for adaptation. Oh, yeah. How about Best Actress? Nicole Kidman, The Hours, Selma Hayek for Frida, Diane Lane for Unfaithful, Julian Moore for Far From Heaven, and Renee Zellweger for Chicago. Yeah, um, I would go with Julian Moore for Far From Heaven. I mean, I, Selma Hayek should be nominated just for her eyebrows and Frida. The fact that just had one big monobrow, just a filthy look. Uh, Diane Lane, Unfaithful, I never saw. Nicole Kidman, I know she had the big prosthetic nose in the hours, but I would go with Julianne Moore. I mean, I, I thought her performance was uh, so beautiful and heartbreaking and far from heaven. You know, that was Todd Haynes making a real homage to a Douglas Sirk melodrama, and Julianne Moore just getting her heart broken in that movie. She was amazing and far from heaven. I'm going to go with Renee Zellweger for Chicago just because she she does it all. She she sings, she dances, she acts, she does it all. So I'm going to go with Renee Zellweger. Okay, what do we got for supporting actor? Chris Cooper, Adaptation. Ed Harris, The Hours. Paul Newman, Road to Perdition. John C. Riley for Chicago. And Christopher Walken for Catch Me If You Can. Well, see, I really just ignored Chicago because I was so mad that <clears throat> it won over Gangs of New York. But I, I'm, I'm shocked John C. Riley was even in the movie and he was Oscar nominated. Christopher Walken had been nominated, I believe, since he had won for The Deer Hunters. That was nice when he got nominated 
uh, playing a father there and catch me if you can. I mean, Newman, guy, so good in Road to Perdition. There's only murderers in this room. Ed Harris is a wonderful actor. When I met him recently after watching To Kill a Mockingbird, I told him which I love Pollock, but I have no issue with the Academy on this one. I thought Chris Cooper was amazing as John LaRoche. His character, I mean, he's toothless and just, you know, he's an orchid thief, for God's sakes. I mean, he, he's so funny in that movie and yet poignant, especially in his scenes with Meryl Streep. I was really happy when Chris Cooper won Best Supporting Actor. I think I'm going to go with Ed Harris in The Hours uh, as Richard Brown. What's your rationale to this one? You know, I just like Ed Harris in this. <laughs> that's that's really about it. I, I'm not, I don't remember <laughs> Paul Newman's performance enough in Road to Perdition to give that the nod. And even though I love Christopher Walken, I'm just going to go with Ed Harris. I got a gut feeling. Okay. How about supporting actors? Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago, Kathy Bates for About Schmidt, Queen Latifah for Chicago, Julian Moore for The Hours, and Meryl Streep for Adaptation. I was really happy when Meryl Streep was nominated because she's a lot funnier than you normally see her in movies, and the Adaptation, especially the scene where she gets high, is hilarious. Julian Moore, I've already said on record, should have won for Best Actress for Far From Heaven, so I'm not going to have her win for The Hours. Can't speak to Queen Latifah or Catherine Zeta-Jones, but Kathy Bates, amazing at About Schmidt. I mean, that nude scene along with Nicholson and her in the hot tub should have garnered her an Academy Award. Already won once for Misery. I would like another one for her for About Schmidt. I like that a lot. I'm going to give it to Julian Moore just because I boxed her out for Best Actress, so I'll give her Best Supporting Actress for the hours. All right, a couple more to go here. We give some love to the writers. Have a Best Original Screenplay. We've talked to her by Pedro Amodovar. Far From Heaven, Todd Haynes, Gangs of New York, Jay Cox, Stephen Zalian, and Kenneth Lonergan. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Nia Valdolos, and Itumama Tambien by Carlos and Alfonso Caron. Shocking that Nia Valdolos, I believe is my alma mater, went to Ryerson, a Canadian, Greek-Canadian. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the fact she was actually Oscar-nominated for that film, which made like $300 million, is already astonishing to me. I know you're going to go with Coron for Itu Mama Tambien. I'm fine with that. Again, Haynes, I thought it was a better directorial film than as far as its writing. I'm happy that Almodovar won, because I remember Talk to her was, I mean, he gets a lot of acclaim for Alba and Mother, but Talk to her was about as good as it gets. I will go with Gangs in New York, though, because Jay Cox Marty's longtime friend and collaborator also co-wrote Silence. Zalian, you all know, because he won the Oscar for Schindler's List, and now he just got nominated for the Irishman. And Lonergan, I mean, Lonergan's fantastic as well. I mean, God, Manchester by the Sea. I mean, that, that is a heavyweight concoction there of writers. And yes, at times it was unwieldy, but the dialogue in that movie was amazing. You know, have you got the sand to prove you can do this? I mean, uh, there are so many great one-liners in that movie. I mean, uh, he talks about how uh, Ireland was first formed. And he goes, oh, what part of that excrementitious isle did your forebears spawn? I mean, it, it's a one-liner after one-liner there from DDL. I'm going Gangs in New York for Cox, Zalian, and Lonergan. Oh, boy, that uh, you're right. That's a heavyweight cocktail of writers right there. But you're right also because I'm going with Itumama Tambien. Okay, how about Best Adapted Screenplay? The Pianist by Ronald Harwood, about a boy, Peter Hedges, Chris Weiss, and Paul Weitz, adaptation, Charlie and Donald Kaufman, Chicago, Bill Corden, and The Hours, David Hare. Bill Conan, I like for Gods and Monsters. Again, I'm going to reiterate for the thousandth time, did not see Chicago, can't speak to that. The Hours, again, it was really well acted, but kind of dry. Definitely not the penis or about a boy. I would have loved to have seen Charlie Kaufman win for adaptation. Incredible script. So funny. So original. It was ingenious what he did with The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean. I would go with Adaptation. 
I agree with you. I got to go with adaptation too. Um, just testament to Charlie Kaufman too. Adaptation being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He's he's one of the greats. So I'm going to go with Charlie Kaufman. I agree. Kaufman's awesome. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. This is fun. Total Recall is always a blast. I love doing that. I love that we do that segment. And thanks to all of you for passing along some love. Thank you to Justin Chang. Follow him on Twitter at Justin C. Chang. We'll be back next week on Cinephile with reviews of three films, including The Edge of Democracy, which is Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary. Also reviewing Honeyland, Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Film. Got lots of movies on the way. Please do subscribe and rate and review. And until then, I'll see you at the movies.